Hello and welcome to this week's Leap of Faith. Sinead O'Connor and he moved through the fair. The singer, who is a Muslim, has just released her memoir, Rememberings, Scenes from My Complicated Life. Three years ago, she converted to Islam, calling it the natural conclusion of any intelligent theologian's journey. Well, later in the programme, we'll talk with Burhana Islam, the author of Amazing Muslims Who Changed the World. This children's book sets out to shine a light on the contributions Muslims have made to history and culture, from scientists and mathematicians to nurses and warriors. And news this evening from Germany, as the Archbishop of Munich, Cardinal Reinhard Marx, has offered his resignation to Pope Francis over the Church's child sexual abuse scandals. The Pope is still considering his offer. In 2018, a study commissioned by the Church found that a number of priests between 1946 and 2014 had sexually assaulted more than 3,600 children in Germany. Only 38% of the alleged perpetrators were prosecuted with most facing only minor disciplinary procedures. The Roman Catholic Church has what is claimed to be the oldest continuously functioning internal legal system in Western Europe. Canon law provides rules and ordinances governing the Christian community. Its relationship to civil law regularly comes into focus, as it did this week, when British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was allowed to marry Carrie Simmons, also Catholic, in Westminster Cathedral as his two previous marriages were not seen as valid by the Catholic Church under canon law. In the same week, Pope Francis has ordered the most significant changes to the Catholic Church's penal code in 40 years, which will require bishops to take action against clerics who abuse minors and vulnerable adults, or else lose office. The new rules have been under negotiation in the Vatican and with cardinals for more than a decade, and will come into force in December and replace the much-criticised code approved by Pope John Paul II in 1983. This evening, I'm joined from his home by biographer to Pope Francis, Austin Ivory. Austin, let's look first at the reaction to the marriage in a Catholic church of British Prime Minister Johnson. Yeah, I mean, Catholic canon law actually has a way of creating more, you know, communications, disasters and misunderstandings than almost anything else. And uh, here was a good example. I was woken uh, early on Sunday morning to be told by the BBC, um, the prime minister got married in Westminster Cathedral. You know, how can this happen? How can this be? And um, so, yeah, I mean, immediately, how is it that a twice divorced uh, man not known for his you know, marital fidelity should be allowed to marry uh, in the Catholic Church um, from a Catholic priest to, uh, to his Catholic fiancée? when so many Catholics, of course, who have divorced are unable to remarry because uh, their their marriages are still recognized as, as valid. And so immediately there was a reaction of, uh, you know, this is unfair and there must have been special treatment and so on. In fact, when I went into it, you know, as soon as you go into it, you realize in fact he hasn't been given special treatment at all. It's simply that uh, he was baptized a Catholic. And I think a lot of people didn't know that. He was baptized a Catholic and he became an Anglican. Oh, sorry, he he, he was confirmed as an Anglican uh, at while at Eton while at school, but that is is not regarded by the Catholic Church as a renunciation of the Catholic faith. So as far as Catholic law is concerned, uh, he is a baptized Catholic and his previous two previous marriages, what's called lacked canonical form. That's to say he went into them without doing it properly, what a Catholic should do, and therefore the church simply doesn't recognize it uh, as a, obviously it's a a valid marriage in civil law, but not as far as the church's sacramental understanding, and therefore he was free to marry. So in fact, you know, these situations are dealt with up and down, you know, our countries every day in parishes, it's quite common, Um, but it just caught everybody, I think, by surprise, not least because it was the Prime Minister. 
And I suppose, does it help if we put lawyers' hats on and when we think about this? Because there were people hurt in this process and feeling hurt from it. But lawyers are able to argue in court and go for a drink afterwards. Yeah, I mean, in, in this case, there wasn't any sort of process. And in fact, Westminster Cathedral was at pains to say, look, here are two parishioners. Um, uh, they're both baptized Catholics. They fulfilled the requirements you know, of getting married in church. Uh, uh, no special treatment was given them. Um, and um, so I, I think, you know, the, the law is the law and, and the law is there for a reason. You know, we have laws in order to give expression to certain values. And what the church is trying to do with its canon law on marriage is to ex is to express the idea that uh, the marriage vow binds us forever, uh, that it creates a bond um, that, as it were, nobody can rend asunder. So um, it has to give expression to that in its law. At the same time, it has to recognize that in a, in a culture in which that is permanence of marriage is not upheld, that a lot of people go into marriages uh, in lots of different ways, and the church cannot hold them to that same commitment if they have undertaken marriage in another way. So it's 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 this is where I think the, the the misunderstanding can happen because oddly enough, a lot of people regarded the church on last Saturday in Westminster Cathedral as being almost lax. You know, how could they marry this man who has clearly had no previous respect, you know, for marital you know permanence and so on? Um, but in fact, the church I think is just is being pastorally realistic that. You know, they take people as they are, and, and that's the system that they have. Let's stay with legal matters for a moment. Uh, and the Vatican has issued new instructions uh, and new instruments in relation to child abuse. And, and not just in relation to child abuse. This is the uh, a revision of the Code of Canon Law, which is the book, the compendium of all the church's laws, which was revised in 1983. Book six of the Code of Canon Law covers what's called sanctions. It's the penal code. In other words, it covers you know, the consequences and sanctions for people when they do wrong. Um, and uh, it has been, uh, the, the process of revising it and tightening it has been going on, in fact, for many years. It began under the previous pontificate. Francis has brought it to a conclusion. Uh, but yes, those areas which have particularly been revised have been revised in relation to the handling of abuse. And one of the important things that it makes clear, well, there are a couple of things that are important. One is that uh, it's no longer just priests that can be sanctioned. And this is important because there was particularly uh, the case of uh, Luis Figari, the uh, founder of the Sodalitium Peruvian movement, uh, who just basically couldn't be sanctioned because he was a layman. Uh, well, he in the future, lay people will be able to. So if you hold a position of authority in the church, whether you're lay or, or clerical, you will be sanctioned. The other important emphasis of the revision is to say to bishops, you have a duty to use the law to impose sanctions. Uh, um, and so, and in the statement that accompanied the revision of the law, uh, the Vatican made clear, look, there has been some confusion on this subject in the past. You know, the law is there to be used and applied. So, you know, actually, this is about the importance of the law and the, the fact that it should be used uh, to uh, sanction offenders, to repair scandal in, in the language. In other words, you know, when, when people see that something uh, wrong has happened, they want to see consequences. Um, and that is the purpose of the law also is medicinal to bring about a conversion in the offender. So it has a proper, uh, you know, punishment has a, has a function, sanctions have a function in canon law. It's fair to say that it hasn't been well received in all quarters. 
Well, I think um, I, I think there are people who who are very suspicious of the church's handling of abuse and almost whatever the church does and whatever the Vatican does. You know, it's always greeted uh, with skepticism. I don't share that. I have followed um, particularly this Pope's revision, and not just this one, but in particularly two previous uh, legislations that he's issued, which have actually had a profound effect on the way that abuse cases are handled. Many many bishops have been stood down for failure. Uh, to hand for failure to deal with abusive priests, and indeed, uh, abusive priests have you know the the the, the sanctions have increased. Uh, there's been much less uh, leeway in appeals and so on, and the whole process I think has been speeded up. So I think there's you know you cannot look at this pontificate and see other than uh, a determination, not just in words but in concrete actions and in new laws, uh, the determination of this pope to deal with this problem. And it is, of course, an element of interpretation because, you know, the, the Sixth Commandment is being quoted about adultery. Uh, and in, for the, in cases of abuse, it's, it's hardly adulterous, it's criminal. And this is one of the things that's changed in the in the revision to the law. So what this, it is now an offence against. Um, I don't have the text in front of me, but I think it's it's against you know life and morals and society or the good of the church or something. In other words, it's it's made clear that this isn't just a sexual offence. This is an offence which goes to the heart of which strikes at the very heart of uh, of the community and the body of Christ. Given your insight into Pope Francis, do you think he would have met any resistance in his attempts to to modify uh, this legislation? Yes, and I think and I think that's part of the reason why it's taken uh, some time because um, very often the concern of canon lawyers in Rome is to protect the rights of well actually to protect rights in general but they're often concerned specifically with the rights of priests and there's nothing wrong with that per se but you can, there is a certain mentality which is that you know the rights the, 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 sometimes there hasn't been the proper attempt to balance what we might call the rights of, of a priest to a trial and his good name and all the rest of it against what we might call the rights of the community to be protected from abusers. And I think this revision to, 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 to canon law, I think, really makes very, very clear that it's the common good that must prevail uh, and that, uh, and that uh, you know, that these uh, abuses must be rooted out and there must be consequences. Austin Ivory, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you. Staying with this topic this evening, I'm joined now from her home by clerical abuse survivor and former member of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, Mary Collins. Mary, we're talking this evening about a document that was 12 years in the making. Are there sufficient reforms from your perspective? Well, there's some things that obviously are to be welcomed and there is excitement about some uh, additions. But in fact, there are things that in civil society have been around for decades. You know, the fact that adult women can actually be sexually assaulted and coerced, that's new to the church. <laughs> that uh, lay nuns and brothers can actually commit sexual crimes that might need punishment. That's been added. Um, and they're all good to see, but of course there's something that should have been there years ago. I think what people have really become aware of this week is the distinction between canon law and civil law and the importance of one over the other. Well, as far as the church is concerned, nothing uh, trumps canon law. Canon law is set in stone and they will always put canon law before any civil law. Um, the problems I see with this document is that it doesn't change much in the way of sexual abuse of, of minors. Um, there's no mandatory reporting. It's not even mentioned mandatory reporting to civil authorities. It was, it was suggested in Vos Estes, but that is not mentioned at all in this document. They do have to report internally and investigate, but nothing at all about civil authorities. 
it's it's full of warnings about making things public and about how you can minimize penalties. And, you know, one example would be a, just one thing um, where it states that a bishop can remove a penalty that's given to a priest, but only um, under the seal of confession. So that sort of thing, you know, keeping everything secret, everything, nothing is transparent. Um, and of course, the child abuse, they covered grooming and everything was very, everyone was very excited about that. But if you read it, it's only grooming when it comes to producing uh, pornographic images. It's not grooming to facilitate the abuse of sexual abuse of a child. You really need to read the, the detail in it. Um, as I say, there is so much that is looks good when you read it first, but when you actually dig into it, uh, there's there's a lot that could have been done differently. And where they had an opportunity, and it took them 12 years, to actually come up into the 21st century. I mean, the fact <clears throat> that they talk about um, a priest, religious, um, breaking the sixth commandment with a minor, uh, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's ludicrous and it's insulting to, to victims to suggest that uh, it has anything to do with child abuse. So there's the possibility for the concept of, of either passion or alcohol or being led astray still still present. There is. And uh, also um, ignorance of the law is allowed. <laughs> um, there is there are and a first offence. Now, if you happen to be a child that's been a, a, attacked by, a, sexually abused by a priest, it doesn't matter if it's his first offence. It's going to affect you in exactly the same way as if it was his tenth. Um, there are an enormous number of caveats, and I would call them loopholes. And um, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the zero tolerance is just, it's miles away from that. They actually say under the section for children that, um, the penalty can go as far as removing from a clerical state, but only where the case calls for it. But there's no definition of what case would call for it. So it's down to the judgment of an individual bishop. And as we know, bishops differ. And what one might think is serious, another might think is minor. So they haven't taken the opportunity to nail this down. To do so would mean giving, I suppose, power to civil law. But they, they ignore civil law completely in this document. There is at no point during it a mention of civil law. One mention, I'm wrong, one mention. And that is where they say it might not be necessary to impose a punishment if it is thought uh, civil authorities' uh, punishment would be sufficient. <laughs> That's the only mention. In other words, if someone is, is jailed, then you might not need to actually punish them by taking away their office or whatever. Uh, that is the only time that I ha have seen a mention of it. I mean, people should really read this document. It's available on the Vatican website. It's a bit hard to find. I have it on my website, mariecollins.net. And it's 16 pages, but it's eye-opening if you actually read the detail. As we've heard in other stories this week, the idea that we're reading legal documents and, and having to read them with a legal perspective without any emotion, it seems to be the challenge. Can, can, how do you read the document? Are you able to read it without the, the emotional <laughs> impact of it? 
Um, the only thing that Im impacted me emotionally was the piece about breaking the sixth commandment and committing adultery with the priest. I mean, it's so it was so offensive. That was emotional for me. But no, I mean, you, if you read it coldly and read the wording, I think over the last 20 years, uh, one thing I have learned is, is how to read uh, wording that is laid down by the church. And Often the first uh, reaction is that looks fine, that looks good, until you actually start reading the ifs, and and buts, and the um, the detail. And I, as I say, that's where I think this document needs to be read in detail. There are good things in it, bringing it up to, to the 20th century, and I say that, say that advisedly, not the 21st century, mm -hmm. but that's a step forward for the church. Um, but on the other hand, as far as uh, the the... There's financial crimes. They have a lot on it about financial crimes within the church and, you know, ordinate, trying to ordain women, which they are very exact to what the punishment should be. Mm. Uh, the only time they're, they're less exact is when it comes to the, the sexual abuse of, of minors. Uh, they haven't defined vulnerable adults. They've gone back to the old way of looking at it as just someone without the use of reason. Whereas we know that... Um, Elderly people, frail people, it doesn't have to be somebody who is mentally deficient are vulnerable, but that is not in the document. What's the role of secrecy still uh, as an impediment to, to this changing? It's massive. It's massive. I mean, again, reading through this document, they double down on the pontifical secret. They actually go harder on that than before. Um, the, they, they stop anyone within the church from talking about uh, processes or even penalties or trials, but yet they don't leave any room for a whistleblower who might want to come forward and say, this is happening and shouldn't be happening. They would be looked on as breaking it as well. Um, so that sort of thing. But, but if you read through it, you know, it's littered with words like scandal and and keeping things secret. It's even a case, there's one part of it which says a priest, if a punishment being made public would cause him to lose his good name, then you, you, don't, you don't impose the punishment. Um, if his transgression, you know, is not known, then his punishment should not be known. If it's going to be known and he's going to lose his good name, it, you don't impose the punishment. It's that sort of thinking of that, the scandal given by a punishment or the scandal given by a case becoming known seems to be a priority for them rather than what has happened to the person on the receiving end of the, uh, the action of the priest. Given your history, given the amount of work you've done in this area, and here we are on a Friday, uh, you know, a couple of days after it's been released, what's your strongest sense? I suppose my strongest sense is that it's going to take another 30 or 40 years before the church actually, if they're still in existence, I've got to say, in any strength, before they come to the point where we would like them to be at now. When they were challenged at the press conference about using the breaking of the Sixth Commandment in relation to child abuse, they said, well, it was there because of tradition. So the the, the whole problem really is they can't let go of tradition, even if they know it's wrong. The English and Welsh bishops ask them not to use that term. They still use it because it's tradition. And I think that holding on to tradition, even though in the 21st century, some of that tradition goes back 
hundreds of years and is no longer appropriate, they can't let go of it. And I think until they do that, they're moving forward, but by inches. Um, and at the same time, still far too preoccupied with secrecy and lack of transparency and keeping it all under wraps. And that really, they've promised change in that area so often that um, I can't see it coming. This is something that will be there for a very long time. This document took 12 years to write. They're not going to rewrite it next week. Mary Collins, thank you for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael. Finally this evening, do you think you know who first thought of the theory of evolution? Have you ever wondered who created the oldest university in the world? And is Joan of Arc the only rebellious young woman who led an army that you've heard of? Well, you might be intrigued to find the common thread is that some of the men and women who changed the world were Muslim. Our next guest, author and teacher, Brahana Islam, has compiled these facts and stories into a book. It's written for 9 to 12 year olds and sets out to provide some role models and heroes. Brahana joins me now from Manchester this evening. Welcome to the programme and congratulations on your book, Amazing Muslims Who Changed the World. I suppose I could put you in the same category for putting it together in the first place. What was the idea? <laughs> um, it was just kind of just to celebrate um people who have identified as Muslims across the ages and across the globe. And I think with, um, there's a lot of rhetoric in the media, which is sometimes thinly veiled and sometimes not thinly veiled, but it can be quite Islamophobic, especially when, because I'm a teacher as well. And um, like the kids that I teach, my students, like actually feel the backlash of that when they're in school and day to day kind of life especially when um because my subject is an english um subject so we have a lot of discussions about the media and um how language is so important um and i think for them they needed something to to kind of celebrate their own identity and um, so that's how it kind of came about it was one of the things that i wanted growing up and never had um so i decided to do one myself and um, knowing how powerful it could be for for the kids that I taught, but also um, just beyond my my scope um, of reach, I guess. Anna, very often people will find that a, that a population or a group are presented in almost a monochromatic way, a black and white. Is that part of what you're changing? Yeah, I think people forget that actually, um, that generally people come in all shapes, sizes, colours, um, and there's not one perfect way of kind of presenting yourself. And I think the media does have a habit of kind of lumping um, the Muslim group into one group and um, making assumptions and things like that. But in actual fact, we do have um, a lot of things to celebrate in our history um, from the Islamic Golden Age where we have scholars from um, Basra and Iraq where they had um, from 780 onwards um, where we had scholars who actually um, were advancing in science and technology and they've influenced because we have um, people who have reinvented, not invented because it's an Indian concept, um, but they have shed light again on the number zero, something that wasn't used um, in the the West for quite a while um, because they thought it, it was quite suspicious. Mm. Um, and I think there was a, a, I think it might be in Florence in Italy that black, that banned the number zero. Um, and 
things like light and our understanding of the world um, that's been influenced um, by Muslim scholars and the thing is um, when it comes to the West it, it gets translated like their names get Latinized for convenience or whatnot so you'll have Al-Haytham Ibn Hassan Ibn Al-Haytham has been Latinized to Al-Hazen um, there's, I think there's a creator on the moon named after his him for in honor of his um, contributions to science um, but what, what happens is you have generations of children growing up not knowing um, the influence Muslims have had on the world um, and by simply Latinizing their names even if it's for somebody else's convenience you kind of erase that part of a heritage that they might have celebrated and identified with that's something I want to bring back like that celebratory culture if that makes sense Absolutely does but also I'm fascinated by the idea that uh, you can also well, influence children by giving them role models. And the role models that you've picked in the book as well, men and women. Yeah, I wanted to span across the ages. Um, I wanted to make sure that um, it, it, we kind of went across the globe as well. And you have this um, stigma, this um, stereotype of Muslim women, like me, who adopt hijab. And I do wear an abaya, which is like... Um, a long dress I, I do think they're very classy um so i don't know um but um you have the stigma that we're oppressed we have a lot of people talking for us but not asking us mm. um a, a lot of people have a lot of opinions but but it, it, it's just a bit frustrating when you're the person being talked about um, and you're not the one given the voice so one of the things that i wanted to make sure was we had um both men and women positively um, presented because um, role models are such a big thing for children um, making sure that they're inspiring um, and they've got people to look up to but it's not just limited um, to role models for the Muslim community um, it, it's for everyone really because the people I've chosen are, are excellent their field and they do um, identify as Muslim as well so that's a bonus for people really well, we wish you all the very best with your next book. We've been talking this evening about amazing Muslims who changed the world. The author, Ebrahim Islam, thank you for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Oh, thank you for having me. And as we leave you this evening, we'd like to mention the news of the death of Mian Gulambari, who died on Wednesday last. Mr. Barry had been a prominent member of the Muslim community since he arrived in Ireland in 1974. He served on the Council of the Islamic Foundation and he was the first president of the Association of Pakistanis in Ireland. The funeral prayers were held yesterday at Klonsky Mosque. And that's our Leap of Faith for this week. Our producer is Sheila Callaghan, our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins, good night.